Hello, everybody. This is Tom Harrison and Ken Krogh with the Eternal Core podcast and vidcast. Today, we've got Kale from Renaissance Ranch. We're grateful to have you with us today. I'm grateful to be here. Thank you. You know, very interested in telling us how you, how you got into this, this profession. I mean, you even tell some of your own personal story. Yeah, I'd love to. I, um, you know, it's interesting. From a young age, I always felt like I had this purpose to help people. But I always wanted to be really money-driven, too. So I thought about being a doctor. I was like, yeah, I'll just be a doctor. It'll be great. Um, interesting enough, I love to work with kids. So I always wanted to be this, like, a pediatrician. And I always thought, yeah, it'll be fine. Um, unfortunately, I didn't really care about school. I cared a lot more about sports as a child growing up. And, and a lot of my own insecurities kind of fed into a lot of that. I tried to want to be this kind of kid who fit in with everybody. Um, and until sports really became a thing for me, I never did. I never really got to fit in. So I always did stupid things to try and fit in, right? And as I got a little bit older, I kind of continued down that path. So I got into a little bit of, like I'd party with a couple of the kids. Um, but I always kind of want to maintain this kind of perfect perception I, I felt like I had to. So I'd kind of drink occasionally with some of the kids around, and I really kind of felt like if I could avoid letting anybody know where I really was, or kind of be fake to who I truly was, but put off the perception of being great, then I'd be okay. So that was a big draw to being a doctor, right? Everybody knows doctors have to be successful. Um, so as I grew up, I always felt be a pediatrician, help people, and kind of maintain these lies I'd been living for a long time. Um, I think it's really common. A lot of us have a lot of insecurities, but for me, I never really acknowledged that I could ever own it and be okay with it. So as I grew up, I, I found a lot of success in sports. Small town Idaho, able to get a lot of recognition. Local Which town? Where'd you grow up? In Wendell, Idaho. Okay, uh, it was a really small Idaho. town. Yeah, it was a, it's a two-way school, only about, oh, probably about 3,000 people, roughly, when I was there. Uh -huh. um, it's a two-way school in Idaho, really small, so it was easy. Being my natural size and stature, like, it wasn't very difficult to be really good at sports or to be acknowledged for being good at sports. So I bought into it. I was able to, to kind of grow up and live my story, um, avoid a lot of the, the connection with people, and just kind of pretend to be a happy person. And so occasionally drinking, um, do some other stupid things that I really wasn't fond of doing or didn't really want to do. But it kind of felt like, man, maybe this will make me happy. So I bit into it, I bought into it, and all along I had these dreams of being some, something I never really wanted to be. Um, later on as I got through life, I decided there was other ways to help people. I, I wanted to work with people. I didn't want to work with sick children, so I decided I wanted to work with mental health, apparently. Um, after serving a mission for my church, a religious ecclesiastical mission. Um, I was able to come back, start college. I fell a lot heavier into substance abuse, and a couple things led to another and decided, man, you really got to start focusing on what's important. Um, I feel you like... You know, we had Alema Harrington here. Yeah. Also worked closely with your organization, and he shared a similar story. Sports. There's a lot of stress, a lot of, you know, uh, you, know you, get, you get the fame on, on, on Saturday after the game, and then, you know, you know, the rest of the year, sometimes it's not quite what you, what you thought it might be. Yeah, there's always that dream. Everybody has this dream of what we think life should be. And part of that with athletics is always the fame and, and fortune of what athletics really is. And part of that is societal beliefs that somehow athletes have this really golden life. And I think it becomes a very lonely world in a lot of aspects for a lot of people. For me personally, I really wasn't that great at sports. But I defined who I was as a person in athletics. And by doing so, I took away so much of my own value. I never gave myself credit for who I was or, or even what my, my Heavenly Father wanted me to be. Because I always attributed my skill set to, you're an athlete, be that athlete. 
That's all I ever could define myself as for so long. Gotcha. And what we define ourselves as often takes over because we then almost ignore the other aspects of us until we think, oh, I think I'm more than just an athlete. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's definitely been, I think that's a lot of our experience. We get compliments on certain things and it becomes really easy to buy into the compliments we're hearing all the time, right? right. A college scholarship here, another college coach called about you. You're all state this. Oh, your name's in the newspaper. Look, you're on the news. Introducing, you know, I distinctly remember really not loving sports, but being in high school and listening to the newscaster, and he'd always say this, Pope and the Trojans. And my, mascot, my, or my high school mascot was the Trojans, and it was easy for me to be defined as Pope. That was my last name. The youngest of nine children, everybody in the valley knew who my family was regardless, and it just became really easy to find myself as Pope and mm -hmm. another basketball player, another football player, another all-state patch or an all-conference patch. Yeah. And yeah, when you're getting compliments, it's really hard to focus on the things that people right. don't care about. We found that also with mental health, uh, people who suffer with mental health illness, that often they get defined as depressed or, mm -hmm. or addicted or anxiety or manic depressive and then people will hold on to that external definition mm -hmm. and they'll buy into it and then they stop start saying that is what I am I am this diagnosis and that limits themselves and limits their ability to move forward so I think all of us have to go through that at some time in our life to realize the external world is limiting me to these definitions, but I am far more than just these definitions or these diagnostic criteria or that I am addicted. I have so much more to offer than just the fact that I'm addicted to pornography or to alcohol or to, you know, over-the-counter meds or to painkillers. Mm -hmm. And absolutely, and I think even what I find in my own practice, um, I personally focus a lot on working with families. Um, I believe that family is quintessential to what we're trying to do in recovery. Mm -hmm. And not making sure that our family is the family, but making sure we develop a healthy family connection. One thing we find, especially when you talk about this definition or defining ourselves with diagnoses, is not only do we as individuals buy into this, so does our family. So do the and people closest to it, it, and they reinforce it. Yeah. Oh, it's okay, we're not going to worry about them because they're just depressed. Oh, when someone acts out in a behavior that, that is unsafe or we feel unsafe around them, we oftentimes want to minimize it for them by saying things like, oh, well, that's just their mental health. That's yeah. just their schizophrenia. That's just their anxiety. Oh, they just don't process the same right. way we do. And so not only are we defining ourselves, everyone around us is defining it, and it makes it, you know, almost takes away our own control and own power and to move forward. I don't think it's almost, I think that's exactly that's a, what happens. Yeah. Our brains then hold on to that and say, this is what I am. And then we stop having expectations to move beyond that. You know, we say, I just have to get by. I I'm not getting better. I'm just going to just keep moving on status quo where I am. And, and decades can go by. And, you know, before we use that full potential of who we are and, and what we can be and what our brain will allow. Right. And another common comment that we hear, or belief system we hear, is this is the best I will ever be. Wow. 
and we sell ourselves on this idea that we'll never be better than what other people see in us, right. for the good or the bad. Right. So what was it that made you want to change and, 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 and get involved in this profession? Um, acceptance. Um, I wanted to change when I accepted I wanted more for myself. Hmm. You know, when I found a reason to believe in myself more than what everybody else believed in. Right? Even, even as an athlete, I was always told what I was good at. I was a great defender. I was a great team player. I was a great this and a great that. But nobody ever told me I was a great scorer. So what I did on the court, I played great defense. I was a great team player. I always wanted to help my team win. But I never took it upon myself to challenge myself to score more. When I met my wife, who's an amazing, patient, kind woman, um, I remember thinking that she deserved more. And I remember thinking that if I deserve someone like that, then I deserve to be who I truly was. And so learning to be an honest human, to be able to look someone in the eye and say, yeah, I have failed in so many things in my life, but I'm not a failure. Mm-hmm. I may have played basketball, I may have made a scholarship, I may have won a national championship, but being a national championship is not as cool as people think it is. Because the truth is, inside of me, there was always a void and insecurity of not being good enough in any other area. Wow. Yeah. So maybe... And those flash in the pans are just that. You know, very quickly the cheers die and, and then what are we going to replace that with? We have to have that, that core sense of I am more than just this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of folks in, in, in this profession that have suffered with these very challenges themselves. Mm-hmm. Do you find that that, I mean, I'm sure it brings empathy and sympathy, but, but I mean, overwhelmingly so. We just, we just went on a, a trip and met three different groups, and they all professed that, yeah, I, I came from this. I understand this. Did that help shape your desire to move into this profession? So for me personally, I actually never admitted I had a problem with substances till way later on in life. Really? Uh, much later on in life, actually. I spent a lot of time almost being that discreet drinker, thinking uh-huh. I was okay just drinking, occasionally drinking with friends. And, and I didn't really acknowledge it until I realized I was drinking with a lot of friends who didn't know each other. <laughs> right? I spent a lot of time trying to drink alcohol with people who would never make a connection with the other person, so nobody would ever know I was drinking multiple times a week, or even daily. Right? Um, I always hid behind things that I could justify why I wasn't the one with the problem, but why I was capable of helping mm. everybody else. And maybe it was because I convinced myself I didn't have a problem. So now, with acceptance of what I was and where I got to very quickly in my life, being able to say, you know, that I understand what it's like to feel hopeless and helpless or to feel insecure is immensely important for my ability to connect with clients. Um, But I think all of us have our own history and our own background that leads us to that ability to empathize with somebody else. Mm -hmm. I don't think feeling hopeless or insecure has anything to do with me being who I am because I think we all feel that way. I think we all feel disconnected. Yeah, more than we realize. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. I find that those of us, though, that have gone through it and finally own up to the reality of what we've experienced, it becomes much easier and much more genuine to call other people on their baloney. Oh, it is. You know? <laughs> it, it definitely is. And it's easy to say, man, you're okay. Yeah. You know, I use that sentence a lot. I think I probably use it you know, multiple times a day probably. Yeah. You're okay. You're not what you think you are. Right. And oftentimes I, I use it with my clients and the people I work with is, man, you're not as cool as what you think you need to be, 
but you're far more important than you really know and far more powerful than you'll ever realize. Yeah, beautiful. But where we get caught up on that, what I consider the stupid things in life, right? Where we want to hide who we think we are, feel that we're somehow different than anybody else, that we don't embrace who we truly are. Talk about um, what, how, how God played a role in, in your coming to grips with some of the challenges you were facing. Oh man, now you're gonna get me. Now I'm just gonna cry. Um, That's good. I think for most of us that have a relationship, it started when we're with some form of religious belief. Yes. You know, we're almost taught that there has to be something there. And for me, one of my biggest things was to understand that what I learned in religion wasn't necessarily what was true. Because the message I was getting, I was misinterpreting a lot. That mm. there was an expectation that I had to be a perfect person to have that relationship with my God. And one thing I find is when I was able to say, hey, my God is far more caring than I'm capable of, I'm okay. You know, I talk a lot with family members and everyone wants to say, I'm just done, I'm tired, I'm exhausted. How can you sit by and watch? And I don't think it's sitting by and watching. I think it's finding a different depth of love that we have for people. Learning that, for me personally, I had to learn that at as weak as I am as a person, and as much love as I can show for people, my God is far more capable of loving me than I am of loving anybody else. Yeah, that's powerful. That's but powerful. I, I find people that are that are in that stage of of addiction, they l limit themselves, so they often find themselves limiting Him. And when we limit ourselves and limit Him, then we also limit our brain. Because limitations, I found our brain often tries to mirror that which we tell it to do. Mm -hmm. And when we stop limiting ourselves and limiting Him, it's amazing how powerful He is to reach out and, and change you and change lives. 100%. Um, there's a thought I come back to quite often when I meet people who want to be perfect, which I think is very common in life. We want to put off this perfect persona of who we might be, who we think everyone wants us to be. Um, being Christian, having a faith in God and Jesus Christ, um, I often challenge myself not to be perfect. Because every time I have to convince myself I am perfect, I feel like I discredit what my Savior did for me. We're not. We don't have to be. We get to be failures and be okay with it. I love the Hebrew and the Greek word for perfect. It's finished and complete. None of us are finished and complete. 100%. You know, and even Christ himself, he waited until after the resurrection before he said, be therefore perfect even as I am. And so he himself never called himself perfect. He said, my Father in heaven is perfect, but I'm not. You know, I am not good. My Father's good. But it wasn't until after he was resurrected before he started saying, I am perfect, because then he was finished and complete. And I know I'm not finished and complete, and neither are you, but I hope let's not. hope we're still <laughs> moving forward. Right? That's true. Yeah. I, I hope I'm not finished, and I think the more awareness we get, the closer we get to understanding truly what it means to have a higher power. Now, one of, the, one of the things, just shifting gears a little bit, that, uh, that, that Tom particularly and I've been feeling very strong about is that, you know, for, for lasting healing, we've got to have God in the equation. But, but with political correctness and, and the perceptions of credentialing, you know, uh, resources at the state level and the national level, 
Um, you know, one of the things Tom first told me is, you know, I'm I'm not as a therapist able to even bring God up. I, you know, I, if if a if a patient is 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 aware that they can bring God into the discussion into the equation, then as a practitioner, Tom was able to fully engage. But but your organization, Renaissance Ranch, has has been very open about about a a, a direct. Uh, understanding and conversation about God, about gospel, about faith. And uh, it's pretty rare to see an organization like that in the mental health arena that's able to do that. Has that, has that have you found that to be challenging or, or is it, I mean, what's, what's it like working for an organization that is openly focused on a God-centric approach to mental health? Man, I, I, I first have to apologize. As soon as you bring that up, I get this rush of emotion. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you want to know what it's like? It's one of the greatest blessings I've ever had. Yeah. Um, I don't, as a clinician, I've never felt the need to share or teach somebody my spiritual belief system. Sure. But I do feel that in society and cultural norms and what, and what you bring up, we have limited people's ability to even feel that they can talk about God, let alone bring it into their own professional life or their personal life and, and into therapy, right? And once we start to challenge that belief system with most people, Right, coming into a place like, like Renaissance Ranch, where we, we call ourselves the gospel-centered principle approach. We invite you to bring up your own definition of a higher power. Right? And we, we focus heavily on 12 steps in our program. Um, and 12 steps for me, that's what it is. What is it to connect with your higher power? How do you come to know a God that's right for you? And we only do that by addressing it, by approaching it, and more importantly, by working on it. Right? If we run stagnant 23 hours out of the day, not thinking about what our relationship with a higher power is, and then at nighttime we wonder if God loves us or not, we're not going to find that answer. Yeah. You better we, we pray. You better look at it. We can't be faced about our belief system and our language about God. Yeah. And to be honest, it, gets, it can become very difficult in mental health as a profession. Right? Um, oftentimes, coming from a place like Renaissance Ranch, there's this misjudgment that we're somehow this religious institution. We're not. We embrace spirituality and religion and whatever the client needs, right? And most of what we do is we empower people to find their relationship. I don't need to define it for anybody. I can't define your relationship with your higher power, with your God, because it's mm. not mine. Right. And you allow that difference so it allows that connection. Like yeah. So many people, you know, they read something and they say, well, my interaction with God is different than that, so I must be wrong, or they must be wrong. Instead of, no, could God possibly have the power to interact with all of us uniquely and differently? Yes. Right. Well, of course. Let's not limit him, you know. Exactly. And one thing you asked earlier, does my experience with my own personal experience help me as a clinician? Yes, it does immensely. And one thing I found that I didn't realize before having children, right, is that with my children being as unique as they are, I too have to find special ways to interact with the two of them, even at a young age. I've got a, a four-year-old daughter and a son who turns two next week, right? That's great. And just my ability to have to interact with them has taught me so much about my own higher power, about my Heavenly Father. And that is, you know, it's okay that we have different beliefs. Because just like he's going to talk to me uniquely, he hopefully is talking to me in a way that I can understand. Just like he'll talk to each one of you and everyone out there who's seeking a relationship. I think the big key to one of the keys, not the big key, but one of the keys to this is learning to hear God in your voice. Because that's the voice he'll talk to you yes. in. Right. Yeah. 
In fact, yeah. I understand that's the definition of meekness. Yeah. Is to take someone at their face value, and, and that's what God does. We don't often do that. And I understand patience, you know, this beautiful definition of patience is to allow someone to proceed and learn um, according to their time frame, not yours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we t- we, I love that. We, we put our whole, you know, persona on the other people. Now, tell us about your role at Renaissance Ranch. What, what do you currently do there? So, um, <laughs> my defined role is I'm a clinical director. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. I supervise the clinical work that goes on with our clients. Great. Um, I ultimately, I make a lot of decisions and I support the clinicians that we have and the frontline staff in making sure that we're treating our clients ethically and what is considered the best practices for them, right? And so part of that is me balancing that role that we've been talking about. There comes a, can become a strong desire to say, turn to God and fix all things, right? And at the same point, it's how do you create that relationship with him or her, or however you define your God to make your life better. And so one thing that I do as a clinical director is I ensure that we're using best practices, but that we're not relying on things that maybe aren't effective or appropriate, but we're focused solely on what the client needs, each individual, but allowing them to embrace what they want as well. And making sure that our staff is doing that, is that we're working as a team to embrace the, the healthy part of this and not being unhealthy ourselves, right? And making sure that we as a team are working towards what our clients need. Um, other things, programming, changes, that type of stuff. I, I support that. I work in that. We make sure it's all healthy and appropriate. Um, personally, um, I'm an advocate. I got a license. I got a license to protect. I've got a facility to protect. I got all that stuff that the state outlines, and I know when it's true and it's accurate and it's appropriate. But if I don't advocate for what my client needs, gotcha. I'm failing. That's great. So that's well, what I do. Two well, more see. questions, if Please. I could. Um, I understand Renaissance Ranch has lots of different locations, but we do. The, the facilities that you fo- work in, where, where are they located? So I'm actually in, uh, it's Bluffdale, Utah. Okay. Um, it's a men's residential facility. We're uh, typically 16 to 18 beds, um, typically 16 men residential facility. Great. Um, 24 hours se- or 24-7 service type stuff. Um, but that's where I'm at. Should we put it up? Yeah, let's, here we go, here we go. We've got a picture of it, there it is. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful home, um, it's a beautiful experience. You know, I tell people all the time, they ask about what I do, and I say, we may not be the best program out there. And I know we're not, because guess what? No no one program out there is the best for everybody. But I do believe we have the best people. I believe we have people who are centered on helping, on taking care of themselves, and we have a beautiful location that, for whatever reason, I didn't realize it until I got here, is very special. There's a lot of love and kindness and support within those walls. Wonderful. The history of recovery. Now, uh, boy, we've been meeting all kinds. As Tom and I and, and Troy and others have been researching this mental health community, there's, there's all kinds of challenges, all kinds of different treatments. Uh, last question for me. Tom might have one. I don't know. But um, what are some of the areas that Renaissance Ranch focuses on in terms of challenges that people have when they come in? So the primary thing, well, not the primary, one of the primary pushes right now is to make sure that we're focusing heavily on supporting families. Okay. You know, we talk about addiction as a family disease. Um, Primarily addiction. Primarily addiction, right? Okay. But families don't necessarily want to hear that, and a lot of people use that almost as like an escape to say, well, my family has to do with this too. We focus a lot on education and helping families find their recovery while their loved one is with us doing their recovery. Now, we are primary substance abuse. We're dual diagnosis, which means we do a lot of mental health as well. 
Um, one thing that I'm passionate about that I think our entire company is passionate about is, is trauma therapy. Um, our, uh, the ownership. What does that mean? So focusing on traumatic events that people have experienced. It might have been a catalyst for behavior. Could have been a catalyst or... for behavior, typically is. Okay. Um, so one thing that our ownership has done is they've gone through and they've made sure that all of our clinicians become, it's called EMDR therapy. And it's, a, it's an incredible therapy for treating trauma and helping our clients grow through their trauma and learning to find resiliency. And so that's one thing we focus on heavily is helping our clients to kind of accept some of the things that have gone on and learn to be empowered because of them and to learn to cope and, and find out what that trauma really does to affect them today. And so we focus a lot on trauma. We focus a lot on, on relieving those negative self-beliefs that have come from the traumatic events and really giving people a voice to talk about their trauma. One thing we find, especially working with men, is there's always kind of those, those major groups of people who say, oh yeah, that's traumatic, right? If you've, we can all look in our mind and when I bring up the word trauma, it's like, oh, like a rape or a car accident or a sudden death or something like that. And we forget that there's so many other experiences in life that are traumatic. And because we have so many of them, it becomes this com compound trauma in our life that we never really deal with. And those are things like hearing the negative messages about ourselves over and over, or being told we're not good enough, or being defined like we talked about earlier by very specific things and feeling inadequate in every other part of our life. So those are things we focus on heavily. Well, that's very helpful. Kale, thank you so much for, for joining us today. I, I've learned a lot. We appreciate working closely with you and with Renaissance Ranch. We'll see everybody at uh, the Eternal Core Conference, March 29th and 30th, uh, the Little America Hotel. Kale's going to be on stage with us and many others. Look forward to having you join us there. Uh, there's tickets, st tickets still available, and uh, appreciate you joining us today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Kale.